Well, I'd like to begin today with a question. Did you know that there are at least nine churches in this suburb alone? At least nine churches in this little suburb of Surrey Hills. Do you know that there are at least a thousand churches in the state of Victoria? A couple thousand, in fact. Did you know that there are at least 10,000 churches Australia-wide? That's a lot, isn't it? I'd like to get an idea of how many churches you've visited, how many churches you've been a part of. So, hands up if this is the only church you have been a part of in your whole life. Just one? Keep your hands up if it's more than one. Okay, so we've all been to this church, so at least have our hands up for this one. What about two? Two churches in your life. Okay, keep your hands up. Three churches in your life. So some of us more than three. Four churches. Some of us more than four churches. What about five? I'm done. I've only got four. Some more than five. What about seven? Okay, still some hands up. We've got some. These are these these people are showing their age. <laughs> and Anna as well, of course. Uh, how about nine churches? Oh, we still got some hands up. Ten churches. Eleven. No, you are old. <laughs> Thank you, Noel. So Noel has been around. Okay, his father's the minister. Oh, there you go. Well, well, when you look at this, uh, Ben's going to put this up for me. When you consider the number of churches around the world, the number of denominations around the world, it's actually quite confusing if you think about it. Quite confusing. It's a bit of a headache. Do you, do you know actually how many denominations there are around the world today? Any guesses? <laughs> Denominations, as in church denominations, on. There are, uh, according to a study in uh, 2013, over 43,000 denominations worldwide. 43 denominations. Well, up here, what you see are the major ones. It's hard to see, but I, I, I intended it that way to confuse you a bit. But there, there's the Baptists, there's the Anglicans, the Lutherans, the Reform, the Presbyterians, the Mennonites, the Salvation Army. It goes on and on and on and on and on. There are over 43,000 denominations. Over. Now, when you look at that, it's quite confusing, isn't it? It's a bit of a headache. How do I know I'm in the right church? How do I know what I believe is the truth? How do I know, in fact, that's a question about if I'm saved, if what I believe is, in fact, the words of eternal life. Now, you can't blame the world... Okay, we'll turn this off. You can't blame the world for thinking that the churches are confused. There are so many groups, so many congregations, so many denominations. But of course, all of you are here tonight, right? And this is St. Stephen's Presbyterian Church. And so you're safe, right? (laughs) It's Presbyterian. So if you know about Presbyterians, you must be safe, right? Uh, No confusion here. But... Which Presbyterian denomination? Now you may not have no, no, may not know this, but do you know? I'll show you this next picture again. I intended it to be confusing, and it's more to confuse you. But do you know that there are several denominations, Presbyterian denominations, in Australia? 
there's not just one. There are, in fact, about ten different Presbyterian denominations. There's the Presbyterian Reformed Church, there's the Westminster Presbyterian Church, Free Presbyterian Church, there's the South Presbyterian Church, Reformed Presbyterian Church, there's the Presbyterian Church of Eastern Australia, and, of course, our one, which is the Presbyterian Church of Australia. It's the biggest Presbyterian, so we, we got that. But amongst all these churches, so we'll get that off then, Amongst all these churches, amongst all the denominations and congregations that meet all over the place, how do you know that you are at a true church, a genuine church of Christ? How do you know? How do you know? Yeah, we'll we'll look at the Bible, thank you. But how do you know that this church is for real, that this church is the real deal? How do you know that you're the real deal, that you are a genuine Christian, one who has eternal life? How do you know? Well, as we study, uh, study and start this new series on the letters of John, John, the last surviving apostle, he makes this clear to us and he was making this clear to the churches of his time. You see, the church during his time, they were influenced by these teachings that were coming outside from outside the church and he wanted them to remain on path. He did not want them to be distracted, to be led astray to be diverted off the path of truth. And so as we turn to this passage, what it says here to the churches in the first century, it also says to us. And so what John does here is he gives us two simple tests. Two simple tests. What is our theology and what is our ethics? Our theology and our ethics, what we believe and how we live. And so firstly, the first test What is our theology? What is it that we believe? And where do we get our theology from? You see, different religions around the world, the major religions, they got their belief system all in different ways. And so, for example, Buddhism. It started with a guy by the name of Prince Gautama. He meditated under under a tree. He experienced enlightenment. He discovered the truth that way, the truth of Buddhism. He meditated and he put those writings down. Or in Islam, Muhammad, he he was given some divine revelation by an angel and those divine revelation was recorded down. So that's how those religions started. But you see, Christianity is a, a bit different today, in fact, very different today, because the Christian faith, Christianity, is tied up, is bound up with the person of Jesus Christ himself. You see, Christianity is not bound up by something that Jesus discovered. You see, that's Buddhism. Buddha discovered something and that became their religion. But Christianity is not that. It's not bound up with something that Jesus discovered. And it's also not bound up with something that Jesus received, a divine revelation that he received. You see, that's Islam. Christianity is different. You see, Christianity is bound up with the person, the historical person of Jesus Christ himself. His life, His death, his resurrection, the historical events that surround Jesus, that is what Christianity is about, is about the person, his life. You see, Christianity is a historical religion, that is, it's a faith based on historical, a historical person and historical events. It's based on the person of Jesus who walked on this earth in ancient Palestine. And so if you can prove that Jesus did not exist. Christianity actually falls apart. 
falls apart if Jesus did not exist. If you can prove that Jesus did not die, then Christianity actually falls apart. If you can prove that Jesus did not rise from the dead, again, Christianity would fall apart. You see, the faith is bound up with the person of Jesus Christ himself. You see, Buddhism, for example, works differently. If you can prove that Buddha did not exist, actually does nothing to the philosophical system of Buddhism. It actually continues. Someone else may discover it. That remains true, whether Buddha discovered it or not. You see, it's not bound up with his person. But Christianity is bound up with the person of Jesus. So Christianity without Christ, there's no Christianity. And so John Dixon, he's the director of the Centre for Public Christianity. He says this, Christianity happily places its neck on the chopping block of public scrutiny and invites anyone who wishes to come and take a swing. And many have come and taken a swing at Christianity. Over the 2,000 years, many have tried to disprove Jesus, show that he didn't exist, show that he didn't die, show that he didn't rise from the dead. And so, of course, Richard Dawkins, in his book, The God Delusion, he says this, a serious historical case can be made that Jesus never lived at all. But of course, no, no good ancient historian actually doubts the existence of Jesus. Jesus did exist. And throughout the 2,000 years of Christian history, Christianity stood the test of public scrutiny. You see, Christianity without Christ is nothing. Without the person of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, it's nothing. And so what that would mean is that there, will, there is no hope, there is no salvation, there's no Christianity at all. Now the reason why I'm labouring this point is because it will help us understand why, Paul, I mean why John, in fact, wrote this letter and why he was at pains at the beginning of this letter to emphasise that he himself was an eyewitness to the person of Jesus. He made this clear and he emphasised it. So let's have a look. We'll turn to our passage. So if your Bible's not open, turn to 1 John 1. Now this passage begins quite unusually. It's quite different to the other letters. There's no greetings. And it begins here with a series of what we call in grammar, four relative clauses. A relative clause is something that begins with a which or who. So it begins here with for that which, 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 which. And so we have to read along to, to see what John was, was referring to. So let's have a look. John chapter 1 verse 1. And so the first relative clause, that which was from the beginning. We don't know what he's talking about yet. Which we have heard. We still don't know what he's talking about. Which we have seen with our eyes. We still don't know what he's talking about, which we have looked and our hands have touched. So what is that which that he's referring to? Well, he tells us in the next bit. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. So the which, the for which refers to the word of life. Now, we might not get the sense of what John was trying to get at here, but John was in fact making a profound statement in that first verse. An extremely profound statement. The word of life that was from the beginning, he got to witness that. And so what is this word of life? What is this? Well, the word of life here should bring to mind the beginning of John's other 
book, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, which was read, and also the beginning of Genesis. You see, the word here was already there in the beginning. This is what we read, the word of life, the word that is the source of life, the the word that gives life, the word that creates life, the word which was there, right there, in the very beginning, with the Father. And of course, John was referring to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Right at the very beginning, whenever that was, in all eternity, Jesus was already there with the Father. Now, some of you may know this, but I teach CRE, Christian Religious Education, across the road to Year 3 students um, on Tuesdays. And each week when I meet them, I answer a question out of a question box. So I get all the students to write any question they want to ask me to put it in the box and each week I answer one question. And these eight-year-old kids, they ask me all strange questions. They ask, how old are you? Like, that's very interesting anyway. They ask, uh, there was this question, do you have a pool? <laughs> now, I wasn't sure whether that L was a question mark or, or an L, but anyway. Another question they ask, who is better, God or Jesus? But recently they asked this question, who lived longer? God or Jesus? Now, how will you answer that? Well, you see, John actually tells us Jesus was right there at the beginning with his father, God. God the Father, God the Son. They were there at the beginning. Jesus is no less glorious than his father. He's no less powerful. He's no less God. He was already there. And so do you see how profound this first verse, the very first verse was, see, the eternal Son of God, the one who was there right from the very beginning of eternity. He got to see him. He got to see him, he got to hear him, he got to touch him. He got to touch the eternal Son of God. You see, he's labouring the point that he was an eyewitness to God himself. Now, the word touch here is the same word that Jesus used when, when Jesus appeared to his apostles after he was raised back from the dead. He came to his disciples and he said this, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. And Jesus says, touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. You see, it was a profound statement John was making. The eternal son of God. John got to witness him. Got to see him. Got to hear him. Got to touch him. In almost sense, John's excitement here. And so we read in verse 2, the life appeared. We have seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim to you eternal life, the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Now, why was it important for for John to proclaim this? Why was it important for, for John to talk about his eyewitness account of Jesus? Well, he tells us why. He gives us two reasons. Firstly, it is so that they will have fellowship with John, the last remaining apostle, so that they will have fellowship with the apostles of Christ. And John says here, to have fellowship with him is nothing less than to have fellowship with God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ. You see, one of the big threats around the time this letter was written what was a heresy that was creeping into the church. It was a heresy known as Gnosticism. It means knowledge. It was a heretical belief 
that says that all that is physical, all that is matter, is evil. It is the spirit that is good, and so we are sort of a combination of good and evil. Our physical self, that's evil. Our spiritual self, that's good. And so the aim for every person, according to this teaching, was to be delivered from the flesh, to be delivered from the physical being. The physical being was considered the prison. And so to be released from this prison, you needed knowledge. And so this teaching was creeping into the early church. But the Apostle John, knowing this threat to the church, he wanted them to stay on path. Don't be distracted by them. Don't be taken off path by them. And so he's, in a sense, says, don't listen to all those new teachings. I'm an eyewitness of the Lord himself. Those guys didn't see him. I saw the Lord Jesus. And so you should believe what we proclaim to you. Be aligned with us. Have fellowship with us. And if you have fellowship with us, with me, the apostle, you have fellowship with God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. You have fellowship with the apostles, you believe what they believe, you believe what they proclaim, you have a relationship with God. And so verse 3, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And so that's the first reason why John put these words down so that they will be in fellowship with God the Father. Now the second reason, it was so that John's joy might be complete. This real, this genuine, this deep, this lasting joy, when someone comes to the understanding that the historical Jesus Christ is both Lord and Saviour, the word of life, the eternal life, because when you come to accept that, you get eternal life. You see, that brought John great joy. For anyone to come to faith in Jesus, it meant that that person lived on forever, gained eternal life. And I suspect that may be your experience when you've prayed for someone you love, you've ministered to them, you've shared the gospel to them, and at some point when they actually become a Christian, when they come to understand that Jesus is their Lord and Saviour, that brings tremendous joy. And so John writes in verse 4, we write this to make our joy complete. And so how do you know that the churches you visit, that this church is the real deal? Well, what do they believe? What is their theology? What do we believe? What is our theology? You see, the theology has not changed over the 2,000 years. It remains the same and it is based firmly on the historical events of Jesus Christ himself and the testimony of the apostles to those events. And so when we are aligned with the apostles, what they proclaim about Christ, we are in sync with them, we are in sync with God. And so when someone claims to have a a new teaching or a new view or a new understanding, some new novel insight to the person of Jesus, you know, that, that he's tied to something else and not the apostles' witness of him. Ideas like from the Da Vinci Code that Jesus got married or, or the appearings of Jesus as an angel of light. When you hear these type of teachings from people or, or theories, you have to question that. You see, it was what John was combating in his time. They, they were, these ideas did not come from eyewitnesses. Or if, if someone claims to teach a message 
that is different to that of the apostles, different to what we have received in scripture, then you must question that as well. Or when someone claims that there are still apostles today, like in the Mormon church, they claim that they are led by 15 apostles who are seen as prophets, well, you must question that as well. If we are not aligned with the apostles, then we are not aligned with God. So how can you tell if a church is the real deal? Well, by the theology, by what we believe. But it's not only our theology that we must get right, it's also our ethics, our morality, how we live, you see. And this is what John moves on to next. So this is the second test. How are we to live? The the way Christians are to live, the way we are to live, is fundamentally and essentially based on what God is like. The way Christians are to live is based on the character of God. And that's why Christians, we strive, we work hard at living godly lives. To be like God, you see, godly. And so John describes here what God is like. So look at verse 5 now. Verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Now, what does this mean, to to say that God is light? What does that actually mean? Well, in in the writings of John, in his letters and also in his gospel, he loves using these metaphors of light and darkness. But light, you see, has sort of a dual meaning. It's got an intellectual aspect, but it's also got a moral aspect. And so, intellectually, light is about truth. All that is true. And so, to, to be told that you're in the darkness means that you are in ignorance or you're in error. But there's also the moral aspect as well. Light is about purity, of perfection, of righteousness, of goodness. And so to be in the dark means that you're wicked or you're evil. And so for John to describe God as light, that God is light, is for him to say that God embodies all that is good, all that is pure, all that is perfect, all that is righteous. And if that is what God is like, if God is light, then to be in fellowship with God means that we live the same way. You want to be in fellowship with God, then you must be living in the light, the same way. So John now goes on to, what he does is he demolishes three claims. Three claims that were made back then and perhaps claims that people still hold today. And so the first claim that he demolishes, he demolishes the claim that sin does not matter. So have a look at verses 6 and 7. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So if God is light, if God is all that is true, all that is good, all that is perfect, then sin actually matters. The smallest of our sin matters. Light and darkness is incompatible. We know that. And so if I call myself a disciple of Jesus... If I call myself a Christian, but yet at the same time, I knowingly and I willingly live a life of lies, of deceit, of dishonesty, of corruption, of greed, of evilness, like it doesn't matter, 
then what I'm saying is I'm not a follower of Jesus. I'm not in fellowship with God. I'm living in darkness. And so sin matters. It can't be watered down. It's deadly serious. And that's why we read here in verse 7, the blood of Jesus, the death of Jesus was necessary to purify all sin. If sin didn't matter, then that death was unnecessary, was a waste of time. And so the first claim that John demolishes is the claim that sin does not matter. It does matter. It is important. It is deadly serious. Now the second claim which he demolishes is the claim to be without sin. That is to say, I do not have a sinful nature. I'm not sinful at all. So look at verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You see, this is a claim that many make, if you think about it. I'm not a sinner. I'm not that bad. I haven't done what those criminals have done. But it's a claim that's, in the end, self-deceptive. See, in evangelism, as I share the gospel, I find out that this is, in fact, one of the hardest points to get across, for people to see that we are sinners, that we are rebels against God, that our nature is sinful. It's hard for people to accept And do you know why? It's because this is what we're led to believe by the world, by the media. We're told human nature is basically good. We're told that, aren't we? You know, you turn on the news and for 99% of the news report you see violence, you see fighting, you see wars, you see all these atrocities. You know, you see all those things and that's meant to help us think. That's meant to get us thinking that people are basically evil. But then the last percent at the end of the news, what do they show? It's always some feel-good piece of news. Someone saves a cat. And then they say, oh, human nature is basically good. A dose of human kindness. You see, you should have faith in human nature. Have you heard that? Have faith in human nature. What utter rubbish. You see, humans will fail us. Humans will disappoint us over and over again, even within the closest of families. People disappoint because we are sinful by nature. And even within the church, there were teachings of this in some movement. In the 19th century, there was this movement of of sinless perfection. It was part of the holiness movement. Uh, There's a story about Charles Spurgeon, this great Baptist uh, preacher, He told a story of one day when he was confronted by a man who approached him and the man said to him, I am without sin. I don't sin. See, there was part of the movement back then that you can achieve some Christian perfection. And so Spurgeon, this Baptist minister, he was intrigued by this and so he invited the man over for dinner. And at dinner he heard this man make that claim again and what he did was he picked up a glass of water and he threw it in the man's face. This was a minister, a Baptist minister, doing this to his guest. Now, of course, the man, he was furious, he was angry. And this, this was all out of place. And then Spurgeon said this. He said, Ah, you see, the old man within you is not dead. He had simply fainted and could be revived with a glass of water. <laughs> see, that's a simple test if you want to try that to show the sinful nature of people. They will snap at you. So human nature is not basically good. It is evil. And so what do you do? 
This is the reality. What do you do? Well, rather than deceive ourselves and say, I'm not a sinner, I'm not bad at all. Many people claim that. Rather than say that and fool ourselves, what we can do instead is this, what John tells us. We don't go through life pretending that we are perfect people. We don't go through life pretending that we don't sin, that we don't uh, need to show that we are failures. We don't go through life hiding all our sin, staying in the dark. Instead, we go through life bringing it into the open, coming to the light and confessing our sins to God. Because look at what John says, verse 9. If we confess our sins, if we bring it to the open, bring it to the light, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You see, that's why in each of our church meeting, the first prayer that our leader, the service leader prays is not just a prayer of adoration, but like Greg praying today is a prayer of confession. Of confession. We, we pray to God for his forgiveness. And you see, we have confidence that when we do confess our sins, when we expose our heart to God, God's not there laughing at us. God is not there mocking us. Oh, what you did, you did that? It's not like we can hide anything from God anyway. But you see the promise here. God is faithful and just and will forgive our sins. And so if we dare to open ourselves to God, we have this confidence that God will forgive us. You see, Christians like that Christian's uh, bumper sticker, Christians are not perfect, they're forgiven. And that's the reality. Now notice why God will forgive. What's the reason? Was it because... And is it because God is this big, fluffy, soft giant who just loves to do these type of things? Or is it because it's it's his job to forgive? No, we're told here that he is faithful. That's why he forgives. He's faithful to the promises he's made. The promises he made in the Lord Jesus. When Jesus died and he paid the price for our sins, God is faithful to those promises that when that happened, he will forgive And we're also told here that he is just. He will forgive. You see, God will not punish me for for my sins, which Jesus has already paid for. All that I've done wrong, Jesus paid for that, so he is just and so he will forgive me. He will not hold me to account for the sins Jesus has paid for. And so this is the second claim. John demolishes that. He shows that we are not without sin. And now the third claim. He demolishes this claim which says that we have not sinned. That is, we we didn't do it. I didn't do it. I didn't sin. And so verse 10, our final verse. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. You see, in scripture you see it over and over again. There's this this very clear and strong Uh, teaching that human by nature, we're sinful, we're evil. Matthew 15, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication. Romans 1, the wrath of God is being revealed against all the wickedness and evilness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Romans 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. That's the claim of God. That is the claim of the Bible. And so when we say, I've never sinned, I didn't do it then at that point God says, you're calling me a liar. I'm telling you, you are a sinner. For you to say that you are not a sinner, you're making me out to be a liar. So can anyone here claim to be without sin, to have not sinned? Well, if you you think that's the case for you, 
Perhaps it's because you haven't driven a car during peak hour. Or if you say that, it's perhaps because you don't have kids. Or perhaps you don't have a wife or a husband, or perhaps you just don't breathe. You see, all of us sin. And so to claim any of these things, that sin does not matter, that we are without sin, or that we have not sinned, it's really a claim saying that I'm not a Christian at all. I'm not in the light. I'm not in fellowship with the apostles. I'm not in fellowship with God. And so that's the ethics of Christian living. We don't claim to be sinless. We don't claim to be perfect. But we claim that we are forgiven. God in his faith, in his justice has forgiven us. And so now let's return to my question to you at the beginning. You see, amongst all the churches, there are so many churches, there's just one across the road, one across this road, so many churches around the world, so many churches in this city, so many denominations. How do you know which church is the real deal? How do you know that this church is the real deal? How do you know that you're the real deal, that you yourself are a genuine Christian, that you are saved, that you will escape the judgement of God? You see, the number of denominations in the world is in fact increasing. Back in the year 2000, there were only 34,000 denominations. Now, about 13, 14 years later, there's more than 9,000, more than than in 2000. So it makes it even more confusing. So many more churches, so many more denominations. So how can you tell? How can you know that you're for real? Well, our test today is quite simple, isn't it? Our test today, what's your theology, what's your ethics? If what we believe about Jesus is the same as what the apostles believed, if what we believe about Jesus, the historical Jesus, is what the apostles proclaimed, if how we live is aligned with the teaching of the apostles, which is aligned with the teaching of the Bible, which is aligned with the word of God, aligned with the word of life, if this is what we are committed to as a church, if this is what we are committed to as individuals, then we can actually have full confidence that our fellowship is not just with each other. This is not a social club. Our fellowship is one that is based on our fellowship with God himself, God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. You see, this is what we believe, this is how we live, and we know this because of the Apostle John. So let let us pray, and we'll pray that this will be true for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the letters of John, which shows us how we can stay on path to continue in trusting the true Lord Jesus as he is witnessed by the Apostles and proclaimed to us. Help us to stick to it, to know what we believe, and to live in a way that is aligned with your teachings to us. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.